Welcome, friends, to a super Seattle-sized version of the George Sanders Show. Uh, the sounds of Mud Honey greeted us at the beginning, and that can mean only one thing, that we are finally going to be talking about the 40th Seattle International Film Festival, um, which Sean and I got uh, to go in some sort of official capacity. They let us through the door um, as press. <laughs> and we're here to tell you about it, or at least... Uh, nine of the 400 films that they showed there. Um, how many films do they show, at Sip, Sean? Do, do you have an official tally? I, I think it is 400 and something. I, I think we saw, what is that, like 150th of the festival, something like that, right. One, 140th, somewhere around. Well, and, in, and in true George Sanders fashion, uh, you and I didn't see the same movie. <laughs> yeah, be, between us, we saw we saw nine and none of them are in common and three of them we're actually not supposed to talk about because they're embargoed so this this should be an interesting uh episode with lots of stuff to talk about it's gonna be it's gonna be weird and it's also it's doubly weird because we've you in particular have gone through a pretty couple of weeks you just moved you're you're in a new home in a new uh abode in a playroom uh, is what I hear. You're in a playroom right now recording this. You've kicked your children out of their playroom to record <laughs> the show, but you're settling in. That's things are getting back to normal. Yeah, I hope so. We got we got internet today, and and this this will be our first test of the internet in the new house. So hopefully it uh, it works. It's already it's already off to a rough start. So <laughs> we'll have our fingers crossed we've, here. We've. <laughs> Thing for 57 minutes and and you're only getting the first of it now so see how how this shakes down but as usual i expect your internet to be the problem here yeah you know it's it's highly likely but as i told you before we started actually officially recording um i think i figured out what the problem we always record on sunday nights uh, or for the most part we always record on sunday nights um and I've noticed since we haven't recorded the last couple of weeks because of your move and I was out of town and stuff, um, I've, I've tried doing streaming on Sundays and it's slower than it is any other night of the week. And I think the reason is everybody's with Thrones. I think some, like pirating it or watching it on HBO Go or something. So my entire neighborhood is using up all internet for Game of Thrones, which is a disservice to all of our listeners out there. And I apologize. Profusely. I don't know. It might be. Maybe are the, are they perhaps watching the replay of Game of Thrones right now? Because you're all you're really very uh, breaking up. Really, so, still? Yeah, a, a uh, little bit. But we'll attempt to make the best of it and and hope that that what we produce here is is somewhat listenable. Like 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 we say, we we strive for reasonably competent and somewhat listenable. So we will do our our best to reach that low standard. Yeah, well, we'll see if we can make it. We'll see. Here, here's the here's the test. If get invited back next year to the Seattle International Film Festival, we'll know we were doing something right. Well, we have a lot to get to, uh, so let's start off with the discussion of one of the films that you saw um, at Seattle International Film Festival, Sean. Yeah, it's uh, the Midnight After, and this uh, uh, this was actually my favorite of the films that we saw. 
uh, of the films that I saw. I, I don't have a favorite yeah, of the films I, that you, you saw. Yeah, making a judgment call on the films that I've seen. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's a Hong Kong film by uh, the director Fruit Chan, who has been around for a really long time. He's kind of... Uh, kind of like a, a second new wave director uh, came started a little bit later than than guys like Wong Kar Wai or Stanley Kwan kind of in the mid 90s uh he's worked more in in kind of horror type movies than than those guys but uh he's he's got a, a good reputation I know a movie uh uh called Made in Hong Kong is one that uh, I've been meaning to see for years it came out in 1997, but I just hadn't got around to it. So anyway, this was my first Fruit Chan film, and I liked it a lot. Uh, it's kind of a, uh, a Twilight Zone-ish kind of premise where a bunch of people get on a minibus in the middle of the night that takes them out of the city proper into one of the uh, kind of suburban areas, but it being Hong Kong, it's all urban. Uh and when they get there, there's nobody else around. Like the streets are all empty, which even at, at three o'clock in the morning in Hong Kong, the streets are always packed. Um, so it's, it's really eerie. And this group of people tries to figure out what, what happened. And, you know, they, they all come from, you know, various uh, backgrounds and, and ideologies and they end up arguing and, and turning on each other. And it, it plays out like a lot of other sci-fi movies like The Mist is one that's uh that's kind of similar um with the the people in the confined space and you have like the crazy woman who thinks that it's like religious retribution against them or something and yeah it's a lot of fun and it stars uh simon yam who if you if you know your johnny toe movies he is uh a frequent johnny toe collaborator and also lam suet who is a johnny toe discovery yeah yeah he he, of course, plays the bus driver. Uh, Kara Hui is the uh, the woman who plays the, kind of the religious fanatic type, and uh, she was in uh, some Lao Kar Long movies: uh, A Diagram Pole Fighter, My Young Auntie, Mad Monkey Kung Fu. Kung Fu. Uh, she's great. She doesn't do any Kung Fu here, but but she's uh, she's pretty good as the crazy woman. Uh, yeah, it's it's really. It's a lot of it's it's a lot of fun. It's kind of gory in parts. It's creepy in parts, and it ends without uh, really satisfying the audience. Like as uh, as we walked out of the Harvard exit, I, I sensed dissatisfaction with the with the rest of the crowd, but I was uh, I was pretty happy with it. And and uh, and there's David Bowie involved too, so I recommend you know, you it just, a lot. You just you just described everything dissatisfaction uh kind of creepy bowie you pretty much just described a recent episode of the george sanders show <laughs> so i see how i see how that all comes together for you um yeah no that sounds really good i i it was one that i wanted to see i circled it um i think on my on my guide and uh you know i i had issues with this festival this year i uh one you know as we mentioned in a previous episode i was out of one for the, for the first week of press screening. So I missed a whole bunch of stuff, including a film that uh, you'll be talking about in just a minute. And then when I did try and go to, to a press screening, um, speaking of later in the show, I got up on the bus and I rode across town, got there, uh, um, walked up and they said, oh, did you get the message that the movie hasn't arrived yet? <laughs> I was like, no, I've, uh, if I had, I would be standing. So, uh, unfortunately, I only saw 
three films this year um, at SIF. Hopefully next year I'll do better, plan a little better in advance. But so one of the three films I, I did get to see um, at, at SIF was, and this is also my, my favorite of, of the ones um, that I'm going to talk about today, is The Boy in the World um, from director Ale Abreu. Um, it's a Brazilian film. It's, it's animated um, and there's, there's no dialogue in the film. Um, and it's about a little boy who, whose father leaves their small town in search of work. And, and the boy is very sensitive and curious and, um, and he misses his dad a lot. So he, he also leaves in his father. Um, and the film kind of charts his journey as he kind of meets surrogate men along the surrogate fathers along the way, these men that um, all happen to work in some aspect of the garment industry. Um, some people pick cotton, um, another guy actually um, stitches shirts and stuff. And the film kind of runs on this boy's um, awakening in the larger world, seeing, you know, big cities for the first time and joyous music and all this other stuff. Um, but then also concurrently, it, it kind of charts and shows nefarious industrial uh, world that is, you know, the garment industry now. And, and I'm on board with Abreu's politics and stuff, but that's kind of where the movie lost me a little bit because it becomes a little too strident in its last third. Um, and, it, and it does something that's really, it's very brief, but something that's very jarring, um, which is a shame because the animation is really, really cool in this film. Um, it's the, the characters are figures, a, li a little more sophisticated than stick figures, but the backgrounds are these gorgeous tableaus. There's really good use of all different kinds of animated styles. Um, very, very colorful. And the sound design, including the music in this thing, is really, really great. So, um, and I was happy to see that coincidentally today, the day we're recording the show, it was announced that um, uh, G Kid Films, I think that's the company, they've released um, full of animated films in, in the States over the last decade or so, including some of the more recent uh, Ghibli stuff, uh, mm. has actually picked distribution rights for this film. So it's getting a somewhat wide release in the States um, this year, which is great. I think, I think people should see it. It, it. it stumbles a little bit, like I said, but um, it's definitely the best film that I saw um, at SIF. Right on. Uh, that was was one that I wanted to see, and uh, I didn't get to to watch any of the online screeners when I had internet, and then I I didn't have internet for the last ten days, so I couldn't catch up with any of them. So uh, that that was one that I missed. Um, I, yeah, my, I, my, I mean, you know, I'm sad that I did watch it as an online screener um, on my laptop because it's one that would be really awesome to see in. A so I, I would recommend doing that when it comes out. Yeah, I mean, obviously we uh, we had a, a difficult time making it out a lot to to these movies. Like I, they had they had press screenings during the week. Um, I only made it to one of them, I think, uh, m mostly because uh, I would have to get babysitters, but also because the movies that that got press screenings were not ones that I was interested in seeing which uh, was kind of a problem. Uh, I did make it out to some, some regular screenings, but, uh, but again, those were, 
we're we're driven by you know babysitter limitations. Like when I've gone to film festivals before, it's all it's always been in another city where I'm not working. I don't have anything else to do except you know go and watch movies. It's it's a little different when when we're like here in the normal course of events. So yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we we had a whole bunch of movies that we were interested in seeing, but I don't. Know, what did we have? Like a, a list of like thirty movies that that we were we're looking at trying to see, and then we ended up seeing nine. So yeah, I think it was even more than that. But yeah, it was, <laughs> you know, it was it was just really bad timing for us this year with with your move and my trip and stuff. Yeah. If we do this again, we can you know we can catch catch more next around um but once one film that you see uh was top list of stuff to see even though it's gonna get a wide release anyway i was just you know kind of chomping at the bit um was richard linklater's boyhood which i know you can't really talk too much about right now but um just some general impressions if you if you don't mind yeah it was it was the one press screening i got to go to um it's uh I, you know, I had a, a one-word review on Letterboxd, which I actually got like a, an annoyed comment about. But uh, the one word is uh, Linklater, which I meant it as kind of like a double-meaning thing. Like, it's embargoed now, but I'll write about it later, and there'll be a link later, which I thought was <laughs> clever. But <laughs> but it's also, it's just, it's a very Richard Linklater movie. Like, it's got all of the... All of the the things that that you like and the things that are kind of annoying about Richard Linklater movies are there in in this film. Like it's it's pretty much exactly what you would expect it to be. Right. And and that's and that's good because I like Richard Linklater, but it's also it's it's also kind of disappointing because it's not anything really great if that makes sense. Right. Well, there yeah, so the the, the 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 conceit, yeah, the conceit behind it is like he started, uh, he would like film a, a few scenes a year, and and kind of follow the protagonist as he grows up, like this one actor. I think over thirteen years, and they would just film, you know, episodes of this this character's life as the actor's age so everyone is is age appropriate so it's just this kind of interesting like little filmic experiment which Linklater does all the time and sometimes right. with with interesting results and, and sometimes not so much but but for, i mean for the most part it's 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 just a a coming of age story about a a boy who grows up and it's it's good Let's talk about this annoyed comment. <laughs> uh, I, I don't even remember what he said. It's like, <laughs> yeah, and we know that. <laughs> Duh. Duh. Yeah, pretty much. That was that was what it was. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I I don't I don't I I can't really go into detail about it because because it's embargoed and you know I don't want to to violate that but on the other hand I don't really have a whole lot to say about it. Um I I suspect that like uh like many Richard Linklater films it will be liked by a lot of people more than I like it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm you know, I I I really I still want to see it um 
And, you know, I'm a little late to the Linklater game. I mean, you know, besides the ones that I'd seen many, 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 many times, you know, Days and Confused and stuff. But, uh, you know, I, you know he, I'm kind of starting to embrace the annoying things about Richard Linklater um, more than I think I would have a few years ago. Like the kind of pretentious stuff like that that happens from time to time. I kind of, you know... See, I that, that I I actually like that about him. I like his I like his pretentious movies. I like I like Slacker. I like Waking Life, and you know, I like a Scanner no, I, I a Scanner Darkly. The ones where like people you know sit around and and babble about weird theories about the universe. Those are my favorite Richard Linklater ones. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I'm I'm sure everybody will see Boyhood once it comes out. So. Um, you yeah, know, I thought. I don't I thought, think there's. We, uh, Before Midnight, I think came out last year, and uh, I, I I preferred that one. Yeah, I think that movie's really freaking good. Yeah, um, see, I, I thought so, th I thought that one, you know, went somewhere somewhere interesting with his kind of annoying characters. Like, I I didn't like Before Sunset so much because I just I didn't like the people that those characters had become, and I think Before Midnight kind of recognizes that they're kind of terrible people. Especially oh, yeah. the, the Ethan Hawke character, and I, I appreciated that. So, uh, there's I I don't think that the Boyhood is as as daring as that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I can't. Yeah, I, I, I could see how that would be the case, I and mean, I think um, Before Midnight is, is is really 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 strong. So, um, well, a little break here, and you know, tying it in, you know, we started the show off with Mud Honey today, and. You know, it's Seattle. You know, we got to do the Seattle sound for this show. So um, we're going to play another shining light on the Seattle scene, in, in, but in the hip-hop world here. So uh, we're going to play a little bit of the man himself, Sir Mix-a-Lot. And we're not going to play Baby Got Back because everybody loves Baby Got Back. We know we know Baby Got Back. Um, but we will link in the notes for this show to probably the coolest thing that's happened in the world uh, ever, which uh, recently at the Seattle uh, Symphony, there was a collaboration between the symphony and uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot. And he closed the show with Baby Got Back. He brought on stage like 40 women from the audience. And it was a wild at the Seattle Symphony, let me just tell you. So I, I we're to that in the, in the notes for the show, and I encourage everybody to check it out because it it's one of my favorite things ever. But uh, this is a more specific song. This is uh, "Posse on Broadway" from Sir Mix a Lot. My posse's on Broadway. Me and Kit Sensation at home away from home in the black Benz limo with a cellular phone. I'm calling up the posse, it's time to get to ripping. I freaking each sunroof to keep you suckers tripping. Everybody's looking, if you're jealous, turn around. The AMG kit keeps us closer to the ground. We're getting good grip from the 50 series tires. The Alpine's bumping, but I need the volume higher. Cause the 808 kick drum makes the girlies get dumb. We're rolling Rainier and the jealous wanna get some. Every time we do this, sucker MCs wanna battle. I'm the man they love to hate, the J.R.U. of Seattle Picked up the posse on 23rd and Jackson Heading for the strip, yes we're looking for some action The limo's kinda crowded, the whole car was leaning back Maharaji's watching TV with two girlies on his lap On Martin Luther King, the set looks kinda dead We need a new street, 
So posse move ahead And we all look kinda swath The crew you can't forget The mix a lot Posse cola ripping up the set My posse's on Broadway Sensation is the teenage lady killer Maharaji's on the death side Dancing like a freak The girlies see his booty And the knees get weak Larry is the white guy People think he's funny A real estate investor Who makes a lot of money Clacking lots of dollars We all got gold Cruising in his bins and- Alright, uh, we'll be hearing more From Mr. Lot later, I'm sure um, We're going to move on to uh, To the next movie I saw Which, uh, like, like Boyhood I was somewhat disappointed in and that is uh, Kelly Reichert's Night Moves, which uh, you may or may not be happy to know it has nothing to do with the Arthur Penn movie with Gene Hackman from the 1970s. It also has nothing to do with, with Bob Seger. Uh, it's about uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Dakota Fanning and, and Peter Sarsgaard as environmental activists that, that want to blow up a dam in Oregon. And... Through the first half of the movie, uh, it's it's really cool. I was I was totally on board. Kelly Reichert, uh, um, her kind of minimalist uh, uh, approach to suspense, I found I find really compelling. Uh, I I really loved Meek's Cutoff. It was it's one of my favorite movies of this decade so far. And the the first half of this film, as it it details their their planning and and setting up their their operation going to to blow up this dam is is really terrific suspense stuff but then after after the event occurs and things begin to unravel the movie becomes really kind of conventional in its uh in the way the different characters react to what has happened and it becomes you know something less interesting than it should have been if that makes sense uh, that kind of Kelly record for me. Um, I I really want to like Kelly Reichert. I've seen her first three um, features. Um, this this is her fourth film, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think I think I've, she may like, have had one before Old Joy. I'm not I'm not sure about she? that. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I saw I've seen Old Joy, Wendy and Lucy, and Meeks Cut Off, and um, I like them in order. Mm. I. I want to like her stuff and I, and I, and I can see, I totally see her strengths. I just don't think they've ever really coalesced into a great film. And I, I, but I do think, um, is her, is her best film. Um, and you know, it's funny cause night moves, there's night moves does not get me it, like the, the premise of her other, films, like Meek's cut off. Um, despite the fact that I disagree with you completely on it, um, <laughs> Wendy and Luke, um, those movies kind of uh, suck me in, like the the idea of them prior to, like that's an interesting idea. Um, Night moves just sounds kind of annoying to me, <laughs> but that you know that that just made me. Yeah, I mean it's there's there's like material there in in the premise for an interesting movie. She just doesn't really. 
it doesn't it doesn't really come together like you know radical environmental politics is something I know more than I, I should about because I, I kind of uh, dabbled in reading about it um, when I was in college um, I never actually blew up a dam or actually took any of it you, seriously to be honest you but change yourself to a tree admit it yeah. <laughs> no you stopped the bulldozer <laughs> but I, I may have read more than one book by the the founder of Earth First, Dave Foreman. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, there's there's like material there for for you know an exploration of like the character psychology and why they believe these things and how it it fits in with the way they live their lives and like the justifications for violence and whether or not it actually does anything or has any good or if they come to any kind of you know awareness of of politics but in instead it just kind of becomes like a psychological thriller like like any other heist movie where you know one you know one person may be the weak link who the other two are afraid that they are going to you know rat them out to the cops so are they going to you know kill them before they get ratted out and it just it's it it doesn't really it doesn't really say anything specific about the world that she's so carefully depicting in the first half of the film. Mm. So yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. it's fine. Uh, like it, I think, I think, I think it's worth seeing just for, just for that first half because it is, I think it is really compelling and it is really, really suspenseful. Uh, but you know, something, something that I really loved about Meek's cutoff was the, the sound design. It was like the creaking of the wagon wheels and, and how she would like integrate that into, into the world that these pioneers on the Oregon trail would, would experience. Like it, there wasn't the overbearing kind of typical soundtrack like you would get in a normal movie. It was all just like the, the creak of the wagons. But in in night moves, you get you get the the typical indie movie soundtrack, right? Mm. So it's just well, it's it's just it's it's too it's too conventional for me. Right, right. Oh, I hear you. Um, well, that's a that's a very good segue um, because the film I saw had a lot of potential um, as well, and I was I was really intrigued with the premise of it, and it unfortunately didn't pay off. Um, and the film is uh, Kumiko, the treasure hunter, um, which is a film by Zellner and, um, and stars Rinko Kikuchi as, as Kumiko, this very depressed Japanese woman living in Tokyo. She's got a, a dead end job where she's, you know, her boss is a sleaze ball and um, her mom, her mom wants her to get married and have kids, and she's she's not buying any of it. She doesn't want to buy into what society wants her to do, and the only outlet that she has for herself is a VHS copy of the Coen Brothers Fargo, and because of her depression and you know potentially other you know uh, she believes that the money. Buscemi buries in the snow um, at the end of the film or film is actually there and so she takes her, her company credit card buys a ticket goes to um, Minnesota where she's planning on finding this treasure and um, and and then her life will have meaning and everything will be great and 
the first half of this movie, like you were saying about Night Moves, is really cool. When she's in Tokyo and she's kind of just shuffling through her life and um, she's in her, you know, rat-packed apartment and and, um, just watching Fargo over and over and over again um, is really, really cool. Unfortunately, it's to Minnesota. It turns in... um, kind of what a lot of the criticisms made uh, towards the Coen brothers, um, including in Fargo are where it's kind of, it's kind of make, not really making fun of the, the Minnesota nice, but it's, it's kind of heightening it for comedy and which I don't buy in the Coen stuff. I don't think that it's really there um, as much as people try and say it is, but unfortunately here, once she gets to Minnesota, she meets a bunch of, um, well-meaning but pretty clueless Westerners um, who take her in and try to help her, um, but they're completely, you know, oblivious to to the reality of what's going on, that this woman is clearly severely depressed um, (laughs) and needs some serious help. Um, And, and it's, it's a shame because I, I I thought that this movie could have, could have done a lot more with that. Um, I will say that uh, the main performance from Rinko Kikuchi is really awesome and she pretty much sustains it throughout the film. Um, I just wish there was a better film around her um, that was less conventional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it, you know, and, and the end has a, it's, it's a poignant yet still crowd pleasing ending, which also kind of sat sourly with me. Um, I, I feel like ultimately, it's 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 a misfire but um there, there's there's good elements to it and and you know you're talking about uh the sound design of of kelly reichert's stuff earlier stuff the sound design here is really great and the, the score is actually um pretty stunning throughout um there's there's this droning heavy loud discordant noise that that plays at certain points of the film that uh it really heightens the mood and it's really cool but i just wish that it it didn't have the scene of the sheriff taking her to a Chinese restaurant so he could get a translator when we all know she's Japanese and it's, you know, so anyway, that's, that's Kumiko, the treasure hunter. (laughs) So did you, were you kind of offended as a, a somewhat of a Midwesterner? Um, Or were you just annoyed that it just kind of got it wrong? I, I, well, I was annoyed that it, it, it played it, it played the lazy card, you know, and, and okay. it, what's funny is that the film, um, and I didn't know this going in, but the opening credits, it, it lists Alexander Payne as an executor on this. And those criticisms I was talking about with the Coen brothers are also lobbed at Alexander Payne. Mm-hmm. And um, where I think it's a little more justified with Alexander Payne stuff. And I was like, oh, I kind of see a connection mm-hmm. here. In did, the DNA, you know. Did you ever see that movie with uh, with Ryan Gosling and the uh, where he like has the blow up doll? No, Lars and the Real Girl. Yeah, yeah. I, a lot of people have told me to watch that, but I I really have no desire to do it. Uh, that that is a movie that I I thought I thought it really kind of captured the the kind of Midwest small town community vibe really well in in a really yeah. interesting way because like that's another interest in, instance where there there's a character who's clearly you know mentally disturbed but the the whole community kind of 
you know, they don't they don't so much indulge his fantasy as they just kind of, you know, accept him and work with him to, you know, get better. Like he's getting right. over a, a trauma that he has. Like he's not, you know, schizophrenic or something. Like he's clearly very depressed and uh yeah, so they're they're kind of like they're buying into his delusion, but they're not really buying into it, and it, and it's all it's all very very specific and not really broad, you know. Right. Uh, yeah, I, and I mean, you I know, I I didn't out. I didn't grow up in the Midwest, but I, I grew up in in Eastern Washington and, and family in Northern Idaho, which is more Midwest than than it is you know Seattle. Oh, definitely. So you know, it 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 culturally seemed seemed uh, accurate to me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are things that they get right here. It's just, um, well, another problem with it is, uh, and I shouldn't blame the movie for this, and I, and I don't, well, I do a little bit, but the audience that I saw it with um, at, at SIF, um, there were a lot of old ladies there that found this movie really funny and charming, mm-hmm. far more than if you were actually paying attention to, like, the underlying problems with this this woman i mean like like there's a lot of moments that are set up as laughs and and so it's definitely there but while i'm watching it i'm like this poor woman is in dire straits here people like it's not that you know you shouldn't be laughing necessarily at this at at her plight here um so you know i think i was i had a little bit of a you know, there was discordance between me and the rest of the viewing public for this one. So, um, but it's, you know, it's, 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 it's a nice curiosity, I guess. Um, it just potential was wasted, unfortunately. Right on. Uh, is that, was that a, a Japanese film? It's actually a Japanese American, uh, co-production. Um, it's written and, um, by two Americans, the Zellner brothers, um, who are also appear and it's directed by David Zellner, um, who's done a bunch of stuff, or not, not a bunch, but he's done a few things that I have not seen. Um, huh. So, yeah. Well, I was thinking maybe, you know, there might be an excuse for, like, misrepresenting the Midwest if, it, you know, it's a Japanese filmmaker. But right. Well, and, you know, it's, and, you know, just to clarify, it's not necessarily getting the Midwest wrong. It's just it's, uh, not trying to... Oversimplifying right. like it, it or cliching it. it. Yeah. You know, she, the first woman she meets. Sorry, my dog's barking. Um, <laughs> Dog did not like Kimiko, the treasure hunter. The movie's uh, portrayal of Midwesterners is kind of exemplified in the first woman uh, that Kimiko meets when she when she arrives, who takes her in um, and tells her two things. One. Uh, I'm going to take you to the Mall of America. That's the only thing you really need to see in Minnesota. Um, you don't need to go on this quest. You just need to go to the Mall of America. And have you read the book Shogun? Um, <laughs> and when I was just like, oh, okay, well, that was it. that was easy. So yeah, this. <laughs> and I know you're 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 not trying to make it sound like it, but this it sounds awful to me. <laughs> Like I said, the first the first half hour, forty five minutes or whatever, where she's in Tokyo and it's and it's a lot more um, kind of fractured and and slow and meandering is 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 really pretty good. And then it turns into this very conventional kind of 
uh, I don't know, slice of life kind of thing. But mm-hmm. anywho, uh, speaking of Japanese films, uh, you yeah. saw a Japanese remake of an American film. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's an odd one. Like it's it's uh, I don't quite know what to make of it. This is was probably my least favorite film at the festival, but. I don't know. It's I, I'm curious to see what other people think of it. It's uh it's a remake of Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. And uh let's see. Uh it's directed by by Japanese director Lee Sang Il. And he takes uh uh Eastwood's film, which which of course won the, the Best Picture Oscar in 1992, and sets it in the late 19 or in the mid 19th century in Japan at the end, basically like the end of the samurai era as the, the Tokugawa's are replaced by the Meiji period, which, uh, you know, I don't really want to get too specific into Japanese history, but basically it's like the end of the samurai and they're all being hunted down by these like new, uh, more modern industrializing Japanese government. And, it basically follows Eastwood's film scene for scene. It's the same premise. It's the same the same characters, more or less. There are like some minor changes, but he he follows it pretty faithfully, and I think I think that's that's a problem because Eastwood, Eastwood's film is is one of my favorite westerns it's it's you know one of my favorite best picture winners i think it, i think it's a great movie i think it's a it's a, a hugely Im, Im, you know important movie for the western genre and it's so specific to that genre that not everything in it really translates to the samurai film and so there are there are scenes that are in the eastwood film and there are characters in the eastwood film like there's this writer of of dime store western novels who goes through this this progression where he first has like this very romantic vision of the West, and then that is is proved to be you know a kind of phony mythology, and then he has this more kind of revisionist take on the West, and that's what he goes with for a while as he uh, like befriends uh, Gene Hackman's sheriff, and then in the end he finds out that that kind of revisionist take isn't correct either that the world is is a lot more random than than any of that it's just dark and chaotic and and violent and that's what he gets out of his experience with the eastwood character and that follows kind of follows the progression of the western genre from like a classical era with like uh john ford and howard hawks to you know their later films and the revisionist films of like sam peckinpah or sergio leone until you get to to Eastwood's movie, which is just like this incredibly, you know, dark and nihilistic take on, you know, men who kill people for a living, which, you know, is kind of dark. But that doesn't really apply to that. That kind of generic structure doesn't really apply to the samurai movie because the samurai genre didn't follow that trajectory and it doesn't quite have that same cultural resonance like they're the the western myth means something different to america than the samurai myth does to japan and because he doesn't really adapt the story to the the samurai genre it just it ends up being a western in with swords 
and it just right. it yeah. does, it just it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't hold together. Yeah, and, I can I can totally understand that criticism. I mean, you know, westerns and samurai films have obviously been tied together through the years, but something like Unforgiven is dealing with a very specific, you know, set of, of boundaries that are, are, are of rules that come from that Western tradition. And, and yeah, I can, t- I totally see that. That's weird. Yeah. Like there, there are, you know, there's, there's a, a clear parallel with, with a fistful of dollars and Yojimbo um, and, and also uh, Dashiell Hammett's novels and, and those three films all, uh, well, all those three uh, artworks all kind of have the same basic premise, but they also all work, you know, work out specific things to their genre. Like Yojimbo is right. a, a, a specifically a samurai movie, and there are things in it that are not in A Fistful of Dollars, which, you know, wouldn't make sense in there. So, you know, Sergio Leone took them out and made it more, you know, Western specific. Uh but 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 Lee doesn't do that with with his Unforgiven remake and 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 the problem is that it's still two and a half hours long and it's got all of these extra scenes that that make sense in the Western but they don't make sense in the Japanese movie so it just it makes the movie feel much longer than it should be like it's about the same running time as Eastwood's film but it it feels much longer right. That's interesting. So, um, does it does it um, visually does it does it try and like ape shots, or is it or is it does it have a different look and look to it than the Unforgiven? Uh, some some it it, it kind of apes some of the shots. Uh, there's like the famous uh, kind of silhouette of uh, of Eastwood standing by a tree at his farm. Uh, at like sunset near the, like the beginning of the film, and and that shot is is very similar. I think like the house is on the opposite side, uh, and some of the, like the the town settings, like it, it rains and during the climax, and there's like the the sign that you, when you enter the the village that you have to give up your your weapons and stuff like that. But but visually, it's not. It didn't it didn't like seem like it was copying. Right. Yeah. It's not Gus Van Sant's Unforgiven. No, no. It's 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 <laughs> set uh, it's actually set in in Hokkaido, which is uh a far northern island in in Japan. It's it's uh is very cold and snowy, which which gives uh, an interesting look to the landscape. It doesn't look like other Japanese movies which are set on like the main island. So, right. No, I mean it's 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 fine. Uh, it starts Ken Watanabe as the uh, kind of the Eastwood character, and he's he's good. He doesn't get a lot to do though, because I, if you remember that character, he spends most of the movie just kind of gritting his teeth and staring off into space, and and halfway through he just gets really sick, like he gets he gets the flu, right. <laughs> and and is out of commission for like you know a half hour of the movie, so. It's not. It's not like a really meaty performance, and he doesn't have the whole, you know, forty years of of genre history that that Eastwood does, right? To bring to the role, he's he's just a, a good actor, right? You know, he's not. Yeah, uh, he's not. He's not a movie star, right? So that's an interesting. Um, 
question like why why do that <laughs> but you know yeah i mean and and i'm i'm curious if if somebody who who doesn't like the eastwood film as much as i do uh would have the same criticism of it like like maybe i'm just i'm just too close to the original right and right. and maybe somebody else will will like it more i'm not sure yeah, well, getting a release is that getting a wider release over here? It seems like it's got some sort of crossover appeal. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would think it would. Uh, Watanabe has I don't I don't know if he is a name here anymore, but he's had some success in Hollywood and like The Last Samurai and Memoirs of a Geisha. So I don't I don't know. Maybe. Right. Well, interesting. All right. Well, with that, we're going to take another break. Uh, we're bringing it back around to Mud Honey now. And this song is called Oblivion. Uh, and it's off of what's my actually my favorite Mud Honey album, 1998's Tomorrow Hit Today, which I think is really um, under. People don't talk about that one. It's their most consistent rap. It's it's great start to finish, um, whereas a lot of records have uh, filled. <laughs> uh, this one is is and this is one of my favorite songs on that record so here's oblivion the guy from mud honey who used to come into the metro all the time mark arm yeah he's the uh the lead singer yeah yeah he he, he was nice he's, he's a nice guy yeah <laughs> mud honey's down to earth yeah he's one of one of the more more famous of the uh of our metro regulars uh my favorite metro rock um, memory is the time that uh, Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses um, came to see something on a matinee and um, with his like supermodel wife and uh, left his wallet <laughs> in the theater and his uh, his wife comes running back in um, you know all dolled up um, and she and, and she's friends 
oh, we left, we think we left our wallet in the theater or something. And he didn't come back in and, and she ran in and, and found it or something. And now, and she, it seemed like she wanted to thank well, she did want to thank us, but she didn't quite know how to interact with us. And so she she like took Duff's wallet, which was fat. I remember that thing was like, that thing was fat. I don't know how it fit in his pocket in the first place. Um, but um, but she she like looks at his wallet for a second and then she like opens it up and pulls out like a $5 bill and she's like, here you go. And then she breathlessly runs <laughs> off into the uh, U district, you know, <laughs> so that, that's my favorite rock star story. Yeah, D- uh, Duff Duff was a regular. He he used to come in all the time with his, with his daughters. Yeah, Duff's uh, a cool guy. Yeah, he uh, he was there so often, and he uh, he started to recognize me. One time, he gave me the uh, the "Hey, what's up?" head nod <laughs> as he came in. My he was fa- like, "Hey, I know you." <laughs> my favorite Metro story, celebrity story, is the time. Who uh, yelled at Bill Gates? Yeah, Remember well, that? I yelled at Bill Gates's family. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that they were Bill Gates's family when I yelled at them, and then like <laughs> as I yelled at them, like they kind of stopped talking and like the crowd parted, and then I saw him like in the middle of the circle, just <laughs> laughing. <laughs> yeah, that was but great. But you know what? They were blocking the entrance, so you know you block that, the entrance right. in my theater, you're gonna get yelled at. So. That's 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 a fire hazard. Right we got to keep things so, moving. So, in the right. interest of keeping things moving, let's let's move <laughs> on to uh, our next movie here, which is another one that is embargoed. It's it's one that I saw. It's the last one that I saw, uh, called uh, Black Coal Thin Ice, and it this year won uh, the Berlin Film Festival, I believe. It's directed by Diao Yinan, who. Uh, uh, previously directed uh, this movie called Shower, which won, I believe, the. Uh, well, he wrote Shower, which I, I believe won the uh, Seattle Film Festival way back in like 2000. I remember we actually we played it at the Metro. Anyway, uh, uh, Black Hole Thin Ice is basically a, a film noir. Uh, it's set in uh, its its opening is set in 1999, but the bulk of the story takes place five years after that in in 2004, as a a cop is on the trail of of somebody who has dismembered some corpses and thrown them into uh, like a coal train, so that the little body parts fall up, uh, turn up all over the province. And he suspects it is this woman who works in a laundry or perhaps somebody who surrounds that woman. So being, you know, a a clever investigator, he ends up dating her in the hopes that either the killer tries to kill him uh, and thus exposes himself or uh, or she tries to kill him and, and thus implicates herself. So, you know, that's police work. Yeah, we, you know, it's 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 fine. It's it's a, it's it's a it's a modern neo noir. It's not as as interesting uh, a film as Jojenka's um, A Touch of Sin, which came out last year, which which similarly tries to put like the, uh, the a kind of crime action genre onto current events. I think I think the Jaw film uh, has a more kind of strident political outlook 
in in connecting these these acts of violence to actual social problems going on in a modern China. Uh, uh, Black hole thin ice, you know, takes place in. It, it could be a lot of different places. It's not necessarily China two thousand four. Right. Uh, so I, d- I don't know that it, it has much more to it than its generic elements. And, you know, say, say what you will about film noir. It's, it's generally not a, a pro-woman genre, unless you count the fact that, that the villainous women get to, you know, say and do a lot of things. So they get to be really active. So they're like strong women, even though they're evil. Right. Uh, <laughs> The, the woman here is is almost completely silent. She has very little personality. She's she's a, a blank, and not like an interesting blank like in Laura that that all of like the male figures can project their fantasies on. She just she's just a cipher. Right, that's unfortunate. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a good film, but I don't I don't really know why it won the the Berlin Film Festival. Yeah, I don't know. It was it was the one that was the one I was speaking of earlier that I, uh, you know, trekked my way across town to go to the press screening, and then the movie was not in Seattle yet. So uh, um, I, I have nothing to say about that one. So, um, well, the final film that I saw um, was is um, I think it's the lone documentary of of the films that we saw at the, at the festival, and uh, it's one that's got a lot of. Uh, groundswell um support for and um it's called what now remind me and it's um it's a documentary um by joaquin pinto um and it it's about him he um it's portuguese and he has hiv and he's had it in the 90s and um it's becoming increasingly you know a debilitating illness and he, the movie is um, kind of a, a video diary of a year in his life as he starts um, this kind of experimental, um, untested treatment for um, for that. And um, it sounds really depressing, <laughs> uh, the premise of the film. Um, but and, it, and there are some really sad moments in it, and it's and it's definitely a. Um, it's not an easy thing to watch um, at, at points, but it's never maudlin. Um, and and this movie actually has a lot of um, vitality to it. And, and I think it's it's definitely um, worth seeing. I think it, it really um, shows something that's never really been seen in this light before. Um, and it's and it's and it encompasses a lot more than just illness. Um, the film's almost three hours long. It's about 160 some minutes or something. Um, and it it follows Pinto and his partner um, Nuno, and they have a, um, a large swath of land um, on an island, and and they kind of work the land. And there's been this long drought, um, but it kind of you know it it turns into this little slice of life of this of this kind of very loving couple that have four beautiful adoring dogs and and um and so it it's it's a lot more expansive than just you know i am i am ill i can't move i'm sick and tired um 
and it and also the movie goes off on these really digressions about art and politics um and repeatedly will will do these really interesting shots so the first shot of the film is is very long and static of and it just follows a slug as it slowly like climbs over a branch um and the movie time and time again will go back to these shots of of you know bugs uh, just sitting on a on a branch and it becomes really and i wouldn't say hypnotic but it really is this kind of calming presence throughout the film like when things get to be too much pinto will will cut to these shots of these creatures these you know insects or whatever um and you just kind of contemplate them and and their existence and and what have you and that sounds a lot more um <laughs> ridiculous than i'm than i, I want it to but it it's um it's a really interesting movie, and I love the title too. What now? Remind me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one I've been hearing about for for almost a year now. I, I think it, it played at Vancouver and it probably played at festivals before that, and I've I have avoided it because it sounds so depressing, and it's also yeah, it's, it's really, also really long. It is very very long, um, and you know. Uh, I would say that it's a little too long. I don't think it needs to be this this long. I, you know, I, I definitely, um, you know, lost my patience at, at times. Um, although it wasn't necessarily those times when it was doing these very contemplative, like I said, shots of nature or what have you. I actually really enjoyed those parts. But yeah, I feel like there could have been... Um, some things that were taken out, but um, it's it's a really beautiful portrait of of this guy's life, and 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 you know he's he's been an artist his whole life, and um, he he was a sound designer. He he mostly is known for his sound design work on a bunch of different films, and he's directed his own stuff too um, over the years. But um, it's just a, yeah, it, it's it's a really I don't want to say heartwarming because then it sounds it. This isn't your conventional documentary, um, which is great. There's no like real talking head segments. There's no you know none of that stuff. It's it's much more just. It's more like capturing. a like a diary kind of thing, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, and and the movie doesn't try and you know create some sort of false dramas or or tie things up really neatly. It, it it's a it's kind of messy in terms of there's not really a story so to speak it's just this happens and this happens and stuff um which i think is awesome you know so um but i can understand people's trepidation with it but i think if you're if you're willing to make the effort um i think you can be rewarded with uh this film so check it out right on well the uh... and to close the show we have one more film to discuss <laughs> Or you have one more film to talk about because I don't, I haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the the last one here is is Once Upon a Time in Shanghai, which I didn't know anything about going in going into it other than than the title, and and I was sold based on just that because I will go to see any movie that starts with Once Upon a Time in. Um, yes, but it turns out it's it's a Hong Kong movie. With a uh, uh, kung fu movie, uh, with the action directed by Wen Wopeng 
and Sammo Hung co-stars in it, and it's a remake of a Chang Che film called The Boxer from Shantung, which I actually had just watched a couple weeks before going to see Once Upon a Time in Shanghai. So, so, so basically, this movie was made for you. <laughs> yeah, except, except. It's, it's not very good. <laughs> it 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 is and it isn't. So, like this is this was like the on on Letterboxd, Like I, I give things star ratings, and and I joke about how I, I rate everything on a scale of three to five stars. But this was the hardest one for me to give stars to because there were things that I hated about it and things that I really liked. So it's not I give it a, like a three star rating, but it's not that I'm I'm I think it's a mediocre movie. It's that I'm I'm literally mixed on it. Like there are great things and there are terrible things. Right. Uh, so with a, uh, we'll start with the terrible things. Uh, the it's directed by Wang Qingpo, and this is the the first of his films that I've seen. But it was written by Wang Jing and produced by Wang Jing. And if you are you know at all very far into uh, Hong Kong cinema of the eighties and nineties, you know who Wang Jing is. He's he's basically the 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 high priest of the lowest common denominator. Like he he is the guy who will do anything to make a buck. He's kind of universally lauded or reviled for his tastelessness and his crassness. And I I actually kind of like him a lot, but I haven't <laughs> I haven't seen some of his more you know egregious uh, films. But he he did a lot of stuff with with Stephen Chow in the early '90s that kind of established him as a star, like the. Uh, uh, the God of Gamblers movies and and things like that. Tricky Brains is one that's really good. Boys Are Easy, some some good early Wong Jing stuff. He also did like this really crazy movie from the '80s that they played at like the Scarecrow movie night uh, a few months ago called The Magic Crystal, which is just bizarre uh, and you know kind of fun. Anyway, Wong Jing was the the producer for this. Wang Qingpo shot it and. Uh, director Wong wanted to make the movie in black and white, but writer-producer Wong said that he couldn't do that because it wouldn't be commercial enough. So what director Wong did was he he timed the color down as low as Wong Jing would allow it, which means that the whole movie is in this really kind of dusty gray fog that just looks hideous. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's 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 bad. It looks like like gray play-doh. And it's it's digital gray play-doh. It's it's right. it's so ugly. I don't understand why he wanted to why he would do that at all. Uh the other thing that that's really annoying is the the actual fights like the, you know, the the physical actions are really obviously digitally manipulated to be sped up. And the the motion isn't smooth at all. It's really it's really jerky and it's really unpleasant to watch. So much so that I I, I was actually concerned that it, there was like some kind of flaw in the digital print that that Sif had that it wasn't actually supposed to look like that. It was just like a bad copy of the movie. Uh, 
Yeah. And, you know, speeding up action is, is something that, that Hong Kong films have done since the beginning. Uh, some directors are more subtle about it than others. Like, I, I think Lau Kar Lung would, would shoot his films at like 22 frames a second instead of 24, which would, you know, make things look just a little crisper, a little supernatural, but not so much that, you know, it's, it's you know, comically silly. This is on the comically silly side. And you know, I, I don't have any problem with 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 you know CGI in kung fu films. It's it's here to stay. It's the dominant aesthetic of, of Hong Kong films in the 21st century. And and some directors have done really cool stuff with it. Like I I really like uh, Tai Chi Zero and Tai Chi Hero, which are are totally digitized. Uh, Choi Hark's uh, Detective D movies are really CGI heavy, but. But in in this one, it just it just looks bad. But there's also stuff that I really liked, and and you know the 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 story is uh, is the story of the boxer from Shantung, which is in the the 1920s or 30s, kind of the the mid period between uh, when China was an empire and when it was invaded by Japan. Uh, as the Japanese are starting to to filter in to the country and starting to kind of assert their control over Shanghai, uh, a young man from the provinces moves into town and starts to to want to make a living. And he wants to to do it not by being a gangster, even though he's got like badass kung fu skills. He wants to like be a moral and upstanding guy and help the the immigrant workers around him. Uh, but at the same time, he befriends this really smooth uh, younger gangster who is waging a war on the head gangsters of the town. Uh, and this follows that uh, very much so, and, and even more emphasis on the friendship between the two gangsters. Uh, it also mixes in this kind of Japanese element, which is inspired by, by Bruce Lee's uh, Fist of Fury, which came out... I, the same year as the boxer from Shantung, in which uh, Bruce Lee's uh, kung fu master is is murdered by the Japanese, so he you know goes on and takes vengeance by killing a whole bunch of Japanese people. Uh, so there's a lot of visual homages to Bruce Lee. The the main character of uh, uh, Philip Ng uh, looks and dresses like Bruce Lee. He's got like the Bruce Lee haircut. And and he you know he mimics some of his his movements, uh, and they also layer in the Japanese on top of the kind of gangster warlords that the 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 cool gangster is fighting against. So there's like multiple layers of bad guys, which is all kind of interesting. And and plot wise, the movie is is good and it's it's compelling and it's got Sammo Hung as like the the uh, uh former gangster who's now taking care of of immigrants in the little hovel that they all live in and that's cool <laughs> well and, and then it sounds like a th it sounds like a three-star movie Sean yeah I mean it's I think you did a hell of a job with that star rating <laughs> I know I it's 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 so hard for me to recommend it because there's really cool stuff on it like the the coolest thing in the boxer from Shantung which was the uh it was the first film by uh, uh Chen Quan Tai who's one of the uh the kind of not like A-list but like B-plus list uh 70s stars 
it's it's his first film and it's his first you know kung fu film so he's got to like announce himself as as a badass and and what he does is he punches a guy in in the fist and like breaks the guy's you know fist because he punched him in the fist and that's just like the coolest thing ever and and philip ing here punches a guy in a fist and then he kicks a guy in the foot and and the the director uh, uh, Wang Qingpo uses you know CGI, so you see like the the you know the the force of the kit go through the guy's leg, and then it gets like really gross and gory with like the bone shooting out of his knee, <laughs> and you hear like groans in the audience, which is you know, you know I I don't go see kung fu movies for the gore, but I I can appreciate a good you know Wang Jing gross out. Uh, effect totally and that's pretty gross so that that was nice to see like i like you had some trouble with uh with your audience in in kumiko the treasure hunter i had a little trouble with this one because uh uh you go see kung fu movies with an audience and there will always people be people who who go to them and don't take them seriously that just look at them as camp as they're like intentionally stupid so you should just laugh at them and and As we've talked about many times on the show, that that drives me nuts. I, I take them seriously, so I, I like to think that the 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 dumbasses who were were laughing at the the dialogue early in the film were really grossed out by the bone effects late in the film. Right. Yeah. Well, there's a silver lining for you. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, well, I mean, it had a, it had, you know, it has a great title. Yeah, it does. It does have a great title. Uh. So I guess uh, what are, what are your thoughts on the festival as as a whole? Like you didn't you didn't really get to see much, and you didn't get out to. Well, I guess you did see the uh, you did saw, see uh, Kumiko with the crowd, right? I did see Kumiko with the crowd. Um, what do I think of the festival on the whole? Um, you know, you and I have both talked about this in the past. Um, SIF is a matter of it. Sometimes it seems like it's uh, quantity over quality. And it's, you know, when we went to the kickoff, the press kickoff and they, and they, you know, gave us the, the guide and stuff. And, and, and there, like you said, there's like 400 movies that play at SIF, you know, some, some are shorts, you know, documentaries, you know, there's the archival stuff. Um, and, you know, in general, yeah, more films, it, you know, is great. Like Scarecrow has all the movies, you know, you could possibly ever want to see for the most part. Um, that's great. But when it comes to like organizing your life around three weeks of movies, um, I think they, they go a little overboard. Um, and I, I wish that it was a little more curated, um, at SIF. Um, so that's a problem for me. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do like what SIF is doing and, you know, um, I like SIF's being a year round presence now in Seattle, um, with the uptown and they're, um, taking on the, the Egyptian as well, um, which formerly was a landmark and, um, you know, they do cool stuff. Um, but I just, it's a little exhausting. <laughs> yeah. How do you I, feel? I, I agree. I, I think, uh, 
I had a good experience like in going to most of the movies I saw were at regular shows and I had good experiences there. Like all of the, the volunteers seemed competent. All of like the, uh, whenever I, I had a request of the press office, they were all really helpful and, and all of that. Um, I would like to, yeah, I would like to briefly, um, you know, shout out to that, to the press crew because they were really on top of their stuff. Yeah. Um, we got responses like, instantaneously um even that first day sent off an email um to rachel um during it was while you were still at the press kickoff i had left because i had to go to work and i sent her an email about permissions for something and presumably she wasn't going to get back to me the next day but she got back to me by like you know an hour or two later which was fantastic so um that was really great i do have to to say that was wonderful yeah but uh yeah Yes, <laughs> but but I agree with with uh, with the idea, and, and yeah, it's 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 too much. Like th- three weeks, more than three weeks of of movies, yeah, like and and, and so many movies, and it's so diffuse. Like it it really needs a focus, and the uh, the way that they that they divide up the the schedule by moods. Yes. Uh, is really irritating. Like I, I'm, you know, and I, I'm, I'm used to, I've only been to two other festivals. I've been to San Francisco. I've been to Vancouver. Uh, I'm used to, you know, being able to find movies easily by, by country or by program. Like, like, uh, you know, there'll be this program of films of, you know, like art house films from around the world. So that's where you get like your major festival movies that play in Berlin, Cannes, Toronto, what have you. And then they make it there or, you know, like your spotlight on France or your Canadian films. Right. Uh, but this is, you know, the, the mood thing is just, you're in the mood for weird. Like what is, what is weird? You have weird horror movies, you have weird sci-fi movies, you have weird, you know, is Once Upon a Time in Shanghai a weird movie? I don't. I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> I, I I was again annoyed with uh, with uh, some of the one of the programmers. I think uh, on that opening day before uh, we ever got a, a program guide, somebody asked him about about Hong Kong movies, about what uh, what movies they were playing there because they had like the big press launch, but they didn't actually give us the schedule until after the press launch. And he said, yeah, we have like this, we have a really robust selection of Hong Kong films and they ended up and they played five and I, I saw three of them. I think I see three. I don't know. I wasn't listening to you <laughs> for the last hour. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, they played. They they played. I think four Hong Kong movies, and uh, I saw two of them. I, I missed Rigor Mortis and and Firestorm, and that was it. That was their robust selection of Hong Kong films. And I'm I'm sorry, that's that's not enough. <laughs> there needed to be more, and, and you know, it's it's Kong, it's not just that. It's just it's just it's it's spread out so much. It's trying to cover so much that it's not covering anything in any kind of detail. Like what you go, you go to the, the Vancouver film festival to see, to see Asian movies and to see Canadian movies. And that's what, you know, you're going to get there. You go to the Toronto film festival to see, you know, international festival films and upcoming American movies that are, are, you know, awards hopefuls. 
you go to the Cannes Film Festival to see like the most prestigious of international cinema, supposedly. Uh, what do you what do you go to SIF to see? What what is the Seattle? What is its identity? Its identity is its size, and that's not really compelling for me. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I would I would love it if it was ten days long and they showed you know uh, fifty movies or something. You know what I mean? Um, as opposed to you know twenty five days and. 450 movies or whatever. <laughs> so, um, but you know, it, it, you know, we got to see this stuff for free. Yeah. That's nice. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, any, anytime someone wants to, um, <laughs> take the time to like, take me seriously for a minute. That's kind of nice. Um, <laughs> but, um, Yeah. You know, hopefully, you know, hopefully we can do stuff like this um, on future episodes and cover other film festivals. You know, you're going to Vancouver in September um, and I would love to go there some sometime. I can't make it this year because I've got um, a big, big uh, trip coming up. But um, yeah, I think it's good. I think it would be a really cool show for us to do that, you know, every once in a while. And I hope people listening feel the same way because we just had to movies that probably nobody has seen yet uh so yeah you know, well, well let us know ho- hopefully <laughs> we do we do sif again next year and we're able to to plan it a little better so we can actually see some of the same movies yeah i think that would be good yeah. and and you know originally we talked about doing two episodes covering this stuff and so maybe maybe you know next time we can really you know get our teeth into something as opposed to these kind of cursory discussions. But hopefully we've, you know, whetted your appetite for at least a couple of things out there that you can keep your eyes peeled for. And hopefully the movies that we really responded to um, festival will get some sort of release um, near, near our listeners. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I'm pretty sure night moves has already opened, uh, or it's opening this week. Uh, boyhood obviously is coming soon. I think black hole thin ice is going to get, uh, an art house release and maybe what now remind me, I'm not sure about that one. Right. Well, and as I said, uh, the boy in the world is, is, has been picked up for distribution. So that should be, um, playing in, in major cities at least. So that, that's nice. Yeah, and uh, if if you come across the midnight after anywhere, at maybe at a, a film festival near you, or you know, maybe it'll it'll turn up on the internet somewhere. Definitely, definitely check it out. Especially all you Simon Yam and, and Lam Suet fans out there, and you know who you are. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're gonna take a break, um, and this is where the Seattle really ties in um, it, for some of us born at a certain time, there are these kind of cultural signposts, you know, these, these kind of totems that, you know, just kind of exemplify a year or a period of, of your life. And for those of us that really you know, came of age in the early nineties, uh, the judgment night soundtrack was a big, for those of you that aren't familiar with the Judgment Night soundtrack, um, it's it was a, it was a collaboration. Each song on it was a collaboration, a rock band, and 
a hip hop act. And this is before, you know, the rap rock thing really took off with all those terrible bands that I don't even remember the names of. But Honey and Sir Mix-a-Lot got together for this lovely, lovely little track called Freak Mama. So <laughs> here we go. Here's Freak Mama, track eight from the Night soundtrack. Have you actually seen Judgment Night? No, I don't think anybody's seen Judgment Night. I think is that I mean, is that the one where the, like the Emilio Estevez and and Ice T are like being chased through the streets at night by like bad guys? Uh, yeah, I don't know if Ice T's in it. I'm looking at the the thing for it now. You got Emilio Estevez, you got Cuba Cuba Gooding Jr., Dennis Leary, Stephen Dorff, and yeah. Jeremy Piven. Uh, um yeah i've seen this yeah movie. Is I, uh, he might be he's on the soundtrack uh, maybe okay. he's just on the soundtrack yeah i have seen that movie it's yeah. not it's it's not there's the, a lot of it's not the okay. worst movie <laughs> okay all right well the soundtrack you know it's got some some pretty big uh collaborations you got slayer and ice tea you got um Sonic Youth and Cypress Hill, which totally makes sense. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, 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 it's pretty good. Hmm. I have seen that movie. It's it's actually not not that bad. Okay, maybe maybe on a future show we can watch Judgment Night. <laughs> yes, but not the next show, which won't be next week or the week after. Probably, uh, we're not exactly sure when it'll be, but it'll probably be. I, Sometime around the end of the month. Yeah, I'm, I think it'll probably we'll probably get back on a normal schedule, and it'll probably be posted around uh, June thirtieth. Um, you know, keep an eye out. We might we might drop a special episode on you in in between, but uh, you know, the crazy times continue um, around these parts. So we'll try our best. But you can always, you know, here's what you do: uh, you follow us on the Twitter at Sanders Show. Uh, you can email us and say, Hey guys, when's the next show coming out uh, at the George Sanders show.blogspot.com or you just go to 
right the george sanders show wait is it george sanders show or the george sanders show it's just george the, what's the web- our website <laughs> The web, the website. web, the website is the George Sanders Show dot blogspot dot com. There you go. The Twitter name, the Twitter name is is Geo Sanders Show. What did I say, George Sanders? I have no idea because your sound <laughs> cut out because internet. Oh god damn it! Well, well. Anyway, whenever we do a show, we're, the next films that we plan on talking about, uh, um, the upcoming release or stateside release, it's already been released pretty much else um bong jun ho's new film snowpiercer um, which has had quite a bit of uh, drama surrounding its release um and we're going to pair that with one of your favorite contemporary directors sean uh, hong sang su and we're gonna be watching i believe the only hong sang su film you've you haven't seen uh virgin stripped bare by her bachelors is that correct uh yes it's the it's the only one i haven't seen but let me just check he may have made another movie since the last time i looked two hours ago so uh (laughs) yes it is the only one of his features that i have not yet seen okay so that fun yes it sounds like a good show um well i'm glad to be back you know it's 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 been rough the past you know couple weeks not uh getting to sit in my closet and uh you know yell at you for two hours so you know i appreciate it i i'm, I'm glad that you took the time um <laughs> sure and uh you know this is a very seattle centric show but you recently moved to uh you know our little baby city tacoma um the toddler to our you know uh I don't know what whatever we are. Um, uh, so, pre-adolescent. I, pre-adolescent, sure, sure. Um, where, I think where, it's really where, fair. We're the uh, where the the uh, the Nirvana to your mud honey. <laughs> You're the girl trouble to our uh, mud honey. How's that? Um, Ouch. <laughs> well, speaking the, of the, bands, the the sound garden to your pearl jam. There we go. The the Mookie Blaylock to your uh, 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 Candlebox. Where's Candlebox from? Are Candlebox? Candlebox is from, from, they're from Seattle, I think. Oh, okay. Or maybe they were from, <laughs> I think they're, I saw them, actually. Did you really? Yeah, I think we actually, we, we went to, uh, they played a show in Spokane, and I, I believe we went to see the opening act, which was a local band, and then left when, when Candlebox came out. Because, Candlebox was... Because Candlebox. Yeah, they were one of the, the first signings to uh, Madonna's boutique label. Yeah, um, she, she apparently discovered Maver- them. <laughs> yeah, Madonna, Madonna discovered Candlebox, so there you go. Um, right, but we're uh, not going to... Tacoma is the temple of the dog to your mother love bone. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I'm going hungry. <laughs> You know, we, I think we should divulge to our, our listening audience that we were severely tempted to just play Spoon Man uh, for every break on this show this week. So you all dodged a bullet yeah. um, with, with the severe lack of Spoon Man. But uh, we're actually going to close it out today with uh, Tacoma's favorite, right, Sean? Yeah, the, as, as I am fond of saying, the, the official sound of the South Puget Sound, Nico Case. With her uh, 
her ode to Tacoma, Thrice All-American. I want to tell you about my hometown. It's a dusty old jewel in the South Puget Sound. Well, the factories churn and the timbers all cut down. And life goes by slow in Tacoma. People, they laugh when they hear. They don't. 